0: Welcome back everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here once again with another CHP episode, the 208th in a series going all the way back to mid-2010. Sorry for the recent disappearing act, but I believe I warned you last episode, it's hectic here to say the least, and there hasn't been the usual amount of CHP time, as in years past, to churn out these episodes. Sorry, I can't give you any details. Interesting though they are you may end up getting much more than you bargained for in this episode, at no additional charge whatsoever. I thought, while we were all here discussing this subject of the Jewish refugees in China, why not fly our balloon at Felix Baumgartner Heights one more time and get a free overview of some of the history of the Jews, and why it was, much later on, that many Jews were fleeing in such great numbers from their cities, towns and villages during the first half of the 20th century, and heading in the direction of China. You know, when Jews and Chinese get together, sometimes there's this banter about how the two peoples have so many shared values. The main ones I hear are the parallels between Confucian and Judeo-Christian values, love of education and learning, closeness of family, thriftiness, entrepreneurial skills, this tendency to stick together, good in business, a worldwide diaspora who achieved so much in their adoptive homes, a history of persecution, and a lot of places where this diaspora ended up, a shared suffering during World War II, and a few others that attest to the notion that, indeed, Jews, Chinese, yeah, there sure is a lot you could say they have in common. I found that, although you can rattle off these similarities. That didn't necessarily mean they're exclusive to Jews and Chinese. You could say the same thing about a lot of other cultures as well. But for these two, I feel totally fine making that gross generalization that, yeah, there are a lot of things Jews and Chinese have in common with each other. And it was perhaps this very notion that contributed to these two peoples pretty much getting along historically speaking, and maintaining a relationship that didn't rack up a great deal of historical traumas or incidents to point to throughout the centuries. And Jews have been schlepping around China going back to the most ancient times in Chinese history, certainly at least to the Western Han after Emperor Wu stoked the fires of the Silk Roads in the first century BCE, and China announced to the world they were open for business. And Chinese Confucianists, Taoists, and Buddhists, they too had no beef with the Jews. So popular anti-Semitism in China never took root. The earliest evidence that shows, indeed, Jews were no strangers to China would be in the Tang Dynasty. But there's a lot of thick smoke attesting to a much earlier presence. And for everyone who remembers the uh, Kaifeng Jews episode, CHP 112, from way back in 2014, The Persian geographer and writer, Ibn Khordabeg, 820 to 912, he wrote a book that mentioned these Radonites, and he identified them as being Jewish traders who, during the Frankish Empire, 5th to 9th centuries, were gifted in all the languages of the Silk Road and carried out trade by land and sea. And this supply chain stretched from the eastern Mediterranean all the way to Shanxi province in China. In the Persian language, or at least back then, Ra meant path or way, and Dan means one who knows. So these Radanites knew the path or knew the way. In Hebrew, they were called the Radani. And I read that uh, early Rabbinic, Talmudic, and Roman sources attest to the Jews as being in the silk trade back then. Rabbinic era, we've maybe heard this term before, 1st and 2nd centuries BCE basically the Western Han, starting all the way back with Liu Bang and the founding of the dynasty. These Radonites played a unique role in the linking of the markets between East and West. During an important time in the development of humankind, they passed a lot more than physical commodities back and forth. Knowledge, ideas, and beliefs were transferred as well. Well, if not for Ibn Khorda surviving manuscript... We might not have known of these Jewish Radonites, but there's other evidence, scant as it is, that attests to the fact that this relationship between the Jewish people and the Chinese went way back. The Hebrew year in this Chinese year of the dog, 2018, is 5779, which means, using my electronic tabulating machine, Jews can claim they've been around since 3761 BCE all detailed in the book of Genesis. The first Jew, Abraham, he's pegged at more or less 2000 BCE, the time of the mythical Xia dynasty in China. 1011 BCE, King Solomon built the first temple. King Solomon, who was he king of? He was king of Israel, son of David, Melech Israel, King David, Kings David and Solomon. That period was contemporaneous with the early parts of the Western Zhou in China, Kings Wen, Wu, and one of the pillars of Chinese culture, the Duke of Zhou. If no one objects too violently, I'm going to channel Bob Beeman and take a running long jump over the history of the Kingdom of Israel, including the Assyrian captivity 8th century BCE and the more popularly known Babylonian captivity of the 6th and 7th centuries BCE, to get to the parts that are a bit more relevant to today's episode, and that is the time of the Roman Empire. Solomon's temple, which stood for more than 400 years, was destroyed in 586 587 BCE. That was Nebuchadnezzar II. Then, seven decades later, the temple was rebuilt, and it's this second temple that was destroyed in 70 CE by the forces led by Titus, the future Roman emperor. And this was the early part of the eastern han dynasty the arch of titus in rome it commemorates this event the western wall in jerusalem is part of this second temple destroyed in 70 ce that's all that remains these are all early stepping stones that led in the direction of the events of the 20th century that we'll get to now where am I going with this? After this period where the Jews and Romans fought these wars and Judea was conquered, the Jews dispersed. In this diaspora, because of the way the Roman Empire ended up and the much later rise of Islam and the development of Europe and Roman Catholicism during the Middle Ages, the Jews spread out into two main geographic regions that developed as a result of this disastrous defeat in 70 CE and all the persecution and destruction that followed. Some didn't venture as far as others and remained in the geographic area we know today as the Middle East. Many also escaped westward to North Africa and across the strait into southern Spain. Now, these were all the Sephardic Jews. Now, since World War II, it's more common to call the Middle Eastern Jews Mizrahi Jews, to differentiate them from those who went to Spain. Prior to World War II, and the creation of the state of Israel. The Mizrahi Jews all sort of got lumped together with the Spanish and North African Sephardic Jews. All those who left their ancestral home and headed in a northerly direction towards Central and Northern Europe, European Russia, those are the Ashkenazi Jews. Ashkenaz was the great-grandson of Noah. These Jews fled to the north of Europe, following the Rhine River into Germany and France, and then they spread out from there. For our story, especially when we get to the Shanghai part of it, this is pretty important. The Sephardim, or Sephardic Jewish community in China, they had a much different China story than their Ashkenazi cousins. These two Jewish communities of Sephardim and Ashkenazim, they didn't speak the same language. They pronounced Hebrew slightly differently. They had their own ways of running a prayer service, fixing a home, how they made their daily bread. They certainly dressed differently. Same, but not the same. We'll get back to this later. The Kaifung Jews, a little later on, were one such group of Sephardim that had to get up and go. They settled in Kaifung, and then in 1163, after years of being model citizens the emperor granted these Jews the right to build their own temple to establish a community. And during the Song Dynasty, they thrived. And over time, if you recall from that past episode, these Kaifeng Jews completely assimilated and over the centuries simply melted into the Chinese pot. The tale of the Kaifeng Jews, as far as popular Chinese history goes, hangs its hat on the four stelae that contain inscriptions that revealed the state of the Jewish religion in that community. Three of the four steles made it down to the present day. They were dated 1485, 1512, and 1663, Ming and early Qing. If you want to know more about this once flourishing Jewish community along the Yellow River in China, go check out CHP episode 112. If you'd like a little more, authoritative scholarly look at the stelae, I invite you to look up the Kaifeng Stone Inscriptions by Tiberio Weiss. I'll put a link to that book uh, on the webpage. He's quite an expert on this subject. The 1489 stelae in particular mentioned some of these same similarities rattled off in our day about Judaism and Chinese Confucianism. Let me quote from this Ming dynasty uh, stelae, quote, our religion and Confucianism differ only in minor details. In mind and deed, both respect heaven's way, venerate ancestors, are loyal to sovereigns and ministers, and filial to parents. Both call for harmony with wives and children, respect for rank, and for making friends. End quote. Between the fall of the Song and the period where this little Overview begins, it's about six centuries, Song, Yuan, Ming, Qing, I repeat, in Chinese history there is a veritable dearth of bad blood between the Jewish people who came to China and the Chinese people who rubbed up against them since the Silk Road days, two kindred spirits perhaps, and I'm guessing perhaps both Chinese and Jews saw something in the other that was familiar. Now, let's get to the story. Remember I said there were Sephardic Jews and Ashkenazi Jews? The Sephardic Jews came to China in great numbers first. As I said, many of these Sephardim came from the Middle East, mostly Iraq, which was then still part of the Ottoman Empire. Now, why did they come? Well, the same reason everybody else did. The Opium Wars yielded the Treaties of Nanjing, 1842, Tianjin, 1858, and the Convention of Peking, 1860. The grand dream thought up by the earliest European traders who came to China, unfettered access to the China heartland, they were one step closer. A bunch of ports up and down the China coast opened for trade. Merchants from all over the world beat a path to all these treaty ports. And like I said, Jewish traders among them. When you walk around Shanghai today, along the Bund, Nanjing Road, a lot of those buildings you see around you were built or financed by these Sephardic Jews. These early arrivals who were already waiting in the queue when the ports were opened. They had a head start on everyone else. Most of them had already Well-established trading operations in India, dealing in cotton and opium. They built Sassoon House, the Metropole Hotel, Grosvenor House, the Embankment Building, Hamilton House, and, of course, Cathay Mansions. All Shanghai landmarks from this early era. At one time, fully one-third of the members of the Shanghai Stock Exchange were these Sephardim. And the three most famous... Their names are found in every single history of the Jews in China. These three families were the Sassoons, the Kadoris, and the Hardoons. They were not the first Jews to show up at these treaty ports, but they were the first ones to make a name for themselves and leave a few monuments to their legacy behind. So you'll be hearing their names throughout this series. These Iraqi Jews who came to Shanghai in the late 1840s by way of India... They quickly figured out the lay of the land in Shanghai, these Iraqi Jewish merchants were culturally quite different from the Western establishment. But their business acumen, their money, financing power, combined economic influence and philanthropy allowed them to mingle in Shanghai high society and to be one of the beautiful people. Of the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim, the former came to China in the 1840s looking to create wealth and build business empires. The latter came in the early 20th century, running for their lives. Elias David Sassoon was the first to arrive in 1844. He was in his early 20s. He came from the Sassoon office in Bombay, Mumbai. He built the foundation of the Sassoon fortune in China and helped get the place established. Other Sassoons followed in time, They became known as the Rothschilds of the East. I have them reserved for their own CHP episode one day, so I don't want to start wandering down that path now. They were, as I said, with the Kadoris and Hardoons, the most preeminent Jewish family in China. More on the Kadoris and others as our story progresses. The first Sephardic synagogue was built in 1887, Beth-El. It's not there anymore. A replacement for Bethel was opened in 1920, and this was Ohel Rachel. This Shanghai-based Iraqi or Baghdadi community, as they came to be known, did well for themselves, and they cultivated this earliest Jewish community in China to take hold in modern times. And as we'll see, it'll fall on these Baghdadi Jews later on to come to the rescue of the refugees who will flee by the thousands from Russia, Germany, and from all over Central and Eastern Europe. At its peak, I don't think the Baghdadi Jewish community in China numbered more than a 1,000 or 1,500 tops. I also read it never topped 700. And not all of them are rich either. And most worked for the Sassoons or the Hardoons and Qadouris or for any other number of trading houses or as security guards and rent collectors for the vast property holdings of these tycoons. These Iraqi Jews spoke a kind of Judeo-Arabic language, and of course English, the language of business. Judeo-Arabic, on a simple level, was essentially Arabic with plenty of Hebrew and bits of Aramaic mixed in, and varies from region to region. In southern Spain, they spoke a language known as Ladino, L-A-D-I-N-O, sometimes referred to as Judeo-Spanish. Later on, when the Ashkenazi Jews start arriving, you'll see there's a bit of a language barrier. They spoke Yiddish, German, Russian, Polish, Czech, and Hungarian. These Sfardim were the high-class Jews. And being high-class and all, they didn't mingle too terribly much with the average Russian and European Jews who came after them. This Baghdadi community was well known for their philanthropy and spreading their wealth around. And not just to their fellow Jews, to the local Chinese community as well. I suppose if you had to pinpoint a certain time in history where European Jews first started considering other options, that would have been in Russia during the time of Catherine the Great. She had a similar affection for the Jews that the next anti-Semite had, only more so. When she was growing up, there were already Jews living in Russia. But after the partitions of Poland... 1772, 1793, and 1795, when Russia acquired these vast lands at Poland's expense, Catherine the Great was horrified to learn a lot of Jews came with the deal. And whereas before there weren't that many, after the second partition, when Poland and Lithuania were taken over, these lands contained... Over 5 million Jews. And Catherine the Great, who wasn't a big fan of the Jewish people, I guess you could say, she counted among her subjects 40% of the global Jewish population. There was one place set up within the Russian Empire where Jews could live. Not necessarily in peace, but they were restricted to this one area. And this was called the Pale of Settlement. A pale, P-A-L-E, is an archaic English term. It means a stake or an area enclosed by a fence or legal boundary. Jews were allowed to live inside this pale, with a bunch of restrictions, and they weren't allowed to go beyond the pale. You heard that term before. If something went way outside the bounds of accepted behavior, it went beyond the pale. This term went back to the Middle Ages in Ireland. There was an area under English control, a district within an imposed boundary. Anyway, if you went beyond the Pale, you went outside the restricted area and were, you know, considered uncivilized. The Pale of Settlement, this is where the Jews had to live. Today, this vast area covers parts of Belarus, Lithuania, Moldova, Poland, and Ukraine. Russia slowly took this area over starting in the mid-17th century. Everything in the late 18th century that was wrong with the Russian Empire, these Jews living in the Pale of Settlement, were always the go-to scapegoats for any occasion. As bad as it was for these Eastern European Jews, it was going to get a whole lot worse as the countdown to World War I and the October Revolution began. Jews tended to organize themselves in these little villages spread out all over the Pale, These villages, or shtetls, were where the Jews laid low, lived their lives, and always had an eye open for signs of trouble. In Yiddish, shtetl means a little town. Many of my older listeners might remember the play, and later the movie, Fiddler on the Roof. Old Tevye, the milkman, he and his family lived in one such shtetl. You remember what happened to Tevye? He got chased off his land. This was that time. To add to the misery of the pogroms of the early 1880s, the May laws of 1882 were instituted that essentially banned Jews from inhabiting certain rural areas and limited the kinds of professions they can get into. Anyway, the Pale was ended March 20, 1917, by government decree. The Pale may have ended, but the anti-Semitism and the occasional pogroms remained. Pogroms were anti-Semitic campaigns sanctioned by the Tsar's government and enforced by the Cossacks, the Tsar's elite corps of horsemen and military officers. It wasn't a good time for Jews under Catherine the Great, but by the time of Nicholas I, 1821 to 1855, no Jewish boy of bar mitzvah age was safe from the threat of military conscription. In Jewish history, Tsar Nicholas I is sometimes referred to as Haman II. Jews who went through the Sunday and Hebrew school regimen all recall the story of the vizier under King Ahasuerus. Haman, with the homan and the Gregor, he conspired to have all the Jews of Persia killed. All recorded in the Book of Esther in the Old Testament. These restrictive laws continued under Nicholas' son, Alexander II, and then reached new heights under one of the truly great anti-Semites in history, Alexander III. No room for Jews in this Alexander's Russia, not even in the pale of settlement. And by the time he came to his premature end in 1894, Jews living in the Russian Empire more and more began thinking about China as a destination. A lot of Jews today, all over the world, and certainly here in the USA, ended up where they did because of grandparents and great-grandparents who got chased out of Russia and Ukraine during this time. In fact, between 1881 and 1914, a total of about two million of these Jews spread out across the shtetls of the Pale of Settlement, hit the road, and spread themselves out all over the world. At the commencement of World War II, there were about eight to nine million Jews in Europe. We know from that past episode on Russia-China relations, CHP 181, that Russia never stopped expanding east towards the Pacific Ocean until they actually reached it. They did this by peeling away outer Manchuria from China at a time when the Middle Kingdom was weak and down on its luck. And it's here, in easternmost Russia, that the story of the Jewish refugees in China starts to perk up a bit. Up till then, the Jewish presence in China was mostly limited to the Sephardic Baghdadi Jews who had set themselves up in mostly Shanghai. Now came the Russian Jews, a different sort than these Oriental Jews, as they are sometimes referred to. How did these Russian Jews end up in China? It all began with the China Eastern Railway, the Dongqing Tielu, that linked the Chinese city of manchouli just over the Russian border from Chita, with the port city of Vladivostok, the end of the line of the Trans-Siberia Railway. After the Sino-Japanese War ended in 1895, China looked first to Russia as a potential ally in checking Japanese expansion plans in Manchuria. Now, letting Russia have a free hand in building and managing this railway, it seemed like a good idea at the time. The Qing government figured... That ought to keep the Japanese at bay. Russia, under the terms of a secret agreement in 1896, received a concession in China to build this railway that would take the Trans-Siberian all the way to Vladivostok. And by 1902-1903, it was ready for passengers. And perhaps the greatest upshot of this railroad project was the creation of the city of Harbin in Heilongjiang province one of the three provinces that today makes up Manchuria. Harbin, which used to be a minor fishing village, became the administrative center of the whole China Eastern Railway. It became a magnet for thousands and thousands of Russians who came to work on the railroad and became part of this new world that was being created by this railway. The Russian Tsar offered all kinds of incentives for people to go east and create a new life there, and become part of Russia's new Pacific Empire that now stretched from St. Petersburg all the way to Vladivostok. A lot of Russians came, including Jews. They came, a few families at first, inevitably followed by others. By the time of the completion of the China Eastern Railway in 1903, there were 500 Jews already in Harbin. And as they did, wherever they went, these Jewish settlers began building businesses and creating companies that provided essential services to the other inhabitants of the area. If you look on a map, easternmost Russia is about as far as you could possibly get from the government-sponsored pogroms happening in European Russia. This far to the east, Russian Jews knew they'd be less likely to feel the pain inflicted by Cossacks and a populace that trended anti-Semitic. In 1905-1907, more pogroms were launched that led to even further migration to this part of Russia, so that by 1908, there were about 8,000 Jews among all the Russians who came to this part of Manchuria that held so much promise. With such a Russian presence growing like it was, the Japanese military, flush with confidence at the whooping they gave China in the Sino-Japanese War, they began to be weary of all this Russian expansion into a part of China that, well, they already had their eye on. And this buildup of Russian influence in Manchuria, especially in and around Harbin, was growing at a very fast clip. This part of Manchuria, including Dalian and Port Arthur, it was going nowhere but up. But not for Russia, 1904, Japan attacked the Russian Eastern Fleet in Port Arthur, today known as Lushunko, and we all know what happened. The new kid in town, the Empire of Japan, just put away the Chinese Empire in 1895, and now this great Western power, the Empire of Russia, defeated. Suddenly, in this northeast part of China, the whole dynamic changed with Japan appearing so invincible and so quickly. The Russo-Japanese War, this is where the Jews came pouring into Harbin. That was Russia's command center for this war. These Jews didn't come as refugees. They were serving in the army. This was not some small-scale limited conflict. Over one and a quarter million troops on each side fought. 175,000 Russian soldiers were killed, wounded, or taken prisoner by the Japanese. Losses on the Japanese side were even higher. Filling the ranks of the Russian army involved a lot of conscription. And in this age-old process, going back to time immemorial, it was always the least privileged who received the highest priority. And Jews, who met the basic criteria to be sacrificed on the front lines, were among these unfortunates. They came by the tens of thousands to go fight in the Russo-Japanese War. And when it was all over and the ink was dry on the Treaty of Portsmouth and Theodore Roosevelt had his Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts in mediating between Russia and Japan, many of these Jewish soldiers who fought in the war stayed put, and to the city of Harbin they went. The Russian military wasn't funding the repatriation or demobilization of troops, so that was another reason. A lot of Russians, including Jews, headed to Harbin instead. As for the Ashkenazi Jewish experience in China, it began in Harbin. It might have begun with S.I. Bertzel, the first Jew to arrive in Harbin in 1899. The first recorded minion was held at the home of one I.L. Bach the following year. The first rabbi was Shner Zalman Gashko. That was in 1902, the year construction began on the first shul. By then, Jewish businesses were popping up like mushrooms everywhere, and the budding Jewish community that had been spawned by the construction of the China Eastern and South Manchurian railways, and then the Russo-Japanese War, continued to expand. And before long... Harbin was a thriving community, complete with its own little Moscow. At its peak, one out of every three Russians walking the streets of Harbin were Jewish. These Jews weren't high and mighty like the Sassoons or Kadoris. They were everyday Jews. A lot weren't terribly religious, but they had skedaddled from some part of Russia or the Pale and came to this strange new land, got settled relied on the safety net of their own kind who came before them, formed a community, built a temple that also served as the center of the community, and they hustled every day of the week except on Shabbos if they were so inclined, and they built businesses of all kinds. Well, that story rhymes well with the experience of the Chinese immigrants who came to America. In Harbin, on Tongjiang Street in the Daoli District, you can still see the main synagogue that was completed in January 1909. A new synagogue was also built later called the New Synagogue, to differentiate it from the old synagogue. In 1913, a census of Harbin counted 34,313 Russians in first place, 23,537 Chinese, 5,032 Jews, 2,556 Poles, and only 696 Japanese. But that will change. Then with the onset of World War I, and then the October Revolution, 1917, that brought a third wave of Jews to Harbin, and this really beefed up the numbers. By the 1930s, on the eve of Jyoyiba, the Mukden Incident, there were something like 30,000 Jews who called Harbin home. Around the time of World War I, the community mobilized to create the Harbin Far East Jewish Relief Committee, who came to the aid of those fleeing the pogroms and also to support former Russian Jewish soldiers. The history of Harbin during this early time was filled with every kind of Jewish culture and Yiddishkeit you could imagine. Food, entertainment, theater, art, journalism, libraries, and all kinds of social clubs. There were something like 20 or 30 newspapers, magazines, and journals during this period. Fortunately, a lot of individual stories have been transmitted down to our time from this period. If you google Harbin Jews or search on YouTube, you'll see. There's no shortage of personal stories to go groove on. There's a lot of material that made it to our time. And as in Shanghai, over the years, community leaders would emerge in Harbin. Names like Bonner, Kroll, Mendelovich, Kabalkin, Skidelsky, and Samsonovich. But the name that is perhaps most prominent in the history of the Harbin Jewish community is Abraham Kaufman. He lived 1885 to 1971. He came from Chernigov in Russia, now part of Ukraine. He was the grandson of one of the most revered names in the Jewish Chabad movement, Rebbe Zalman Schneerson. Abraham Kaufman came to Harbin in 1912, and in time became the head of the Jewish community there until the end of World War II. After the war, he ended up getting arrested by the Soviets and got put in a gulag for 11 years. But happy ending, he ended up in Israel in 1961, where he lived out his last 10 years. But in the city of Harbin... He was the leader who the Jews deferred to. Abraham Kaufman was also the leader in the Harbin Zionist movement. I don't want to get into the subject of Zionism. One man's Yom HaAtzmaut is another man's Yom Ha'Nakbah. However, just for the purposes of this episode, many of the Jews who ended up in Harbin during the first half of the 20th century Many were supporters of the Zionist movement that essentially called for the reestablishment of a Jewish homeland in what was called Historic Israel. And anyone familiar with that history knows that land was, at that time, while all this was happening in Manchuria, was called Palestine and mostly populated by Arabs. Zionist groups in Harbin were working overtime to try and resettle Jewish refugees from all over the world in Palestine. There was a very vigorous and effective Zionist movement in Harbin, and elsewhere in China, of course. You know, not many people know this, but Sun Yat-sen was an enthusiastic supporter of not only Zionism, but of the Jews in general, I guess you could surmise. Sun died in 1925, but prior to this time, when he was desperately trying to make the best of a bad situation, maybe you could say, He spoke often about the Jewish people and their Zionist cause. He equated it with Chinese nationalism and their struggle in the face of injustices meted out against China by the international community. Not only Sun Yat-sen, but many others in the Republic of China government lent their support, especially after the Balfour Declaration, November 2nd, 1917. In April of 1920... Sun Yat sen had written to the founder of the Shanghai Zionist Association, Nissim Elias Benjamin Ezra, known also as N.E.B. Ezra, quote, All lovers of democracy cannot help but support wholeheartedly and welcome with enthusiasm the movement to restore your wonderful and historic nation, which rightfully deserves an honorific place in the family of nations. End quote. Eli Kaduri, who we'll talk more about next episode, He was later a chairman of the Shanghai Zionist Association. There were several in China, and I don't want to dwell on this history, but suffice to say, playing out in the background while our story unfolds in China was this whole movement. So thanks to the opportunities presented by the railroads, the Russo-Japanese War, the Russian Revolution, World War I, and of course the well-worn but always effective forms of intimidation the Jews faced during the frequent pogroms, a safe haven emerged in this city on the Songhua River, where the Russian Jews could breathe easy and enjoy a normal life. Over time, Harbin began to be referred to as the Oriental St. Petersburg, and even got to join such great cities as Hanoi, Saigon, and Shanghai as another Paris of the Orient. And later on, because of the Russian culture that just oozed out of Harbin, it was also called the City of Music. As the history of Harbin was emerging, Borodin and Tchaikovsky had just been gone only a few decades. Mussorgsky had recently passed. Rimsky-Korsakov passed away in 1908. Everything great about Russian music that had just been gifted to the world, you could hear it in Harbin too. In the three cities I will focus on in this series, Harbin, Tianjin, and Shanghai, each had their own grand hotel, where everyone went for a special night out. And if you were someone well-heeled and passing through Harbin, you always had a sticker on your suitcase from the modern hotel. Modern with an E on the end. Today the hotel can be found on Zhongyang Da Jie, no more E on the end of its present incarnation, but it's still there. It was built by a wealthy Jewish businessman named Joseph Kaspe. He made his fortune in the jewelry business and from a chain of theaters. But in its time, the modern was the place, like the Astor House was in Shanghai for a while. It had its grand opening in September 1914. Anyone who was anyone in the world of entertainment, if they came to Harbin, that's where they performed. It was Harbin's palace for the privileged classes of Russians and Chinese. In every affair in the Harbin Jewish community that called for wall-to-wall chop liver, it was held at the modern. This Harbin Jewish community, these Harbinsi, reached its peak in nineteen thirty. Soon after that, this perfect little world the Jews had created for themselves in Harbin, took a huge hit when the Japanese made their move on nine eighteen Thirty-one, and more outwardly carried out their takeover of Manchuria. The Jews who called Harbin their home began to have other ideas after the Japanese moved in and tried to establish control over this most key city in Manchuria. This led to one of the most memorable incidents from that time that directly led to a mass exodus of Jews from Harbin. This was the kidnap and murder of Joseph Caspi's talented 24-year-old pianist son, Simeon. This was the Getty kidnapping of its day. They kidnapped him, demanded ransom from the father. Poor Joseph Caspé worked with the French consulate for 95 days to handle the negotiations. The kidnappers later cut off Simeon Caspé's ears and sent them to Joseph and kept demanding their chips. And when it was all over, Simeon Caspé was murdered after a few rounds of torture at the hands of his kidnappers. This was in 1933. That was pretty much it. The Japanese who investigated the case sort of looked the other way, and the message was clear. Nothing was going to come of this. Ever since they rolled into town and muscled in on all the action, the Japanese were more interested in working with the white Russians of Harbin to maintain order and keep the communists at bay. And if that meant looking the other way, when white Russian anti-Semites did their thing, killed a Jew here and there, well, that's the way it had to be. The end of World War I and the Russian Revolution brought a lot of these white Russians to Harbin. It's hard to know who they hated more, Bolsheviks or Jews. But whatever the case, they brought the whole gamut of anti-Semitic inclinations to China that were made famous in Eastern Europe and Russia. And into the 1920s, the same old familiar routine of getting roughed up on the streets and constantly getting intimidated and ripped off started to become commonplace for Jews. And in 1931, the Harbin Russian Fascist Party was founded. And they too became a tool of the Japanese who found common ground with them and used them to put the squeeze on anyone the Japanese authorities had their eye on. And many... Harbin Jews had property or assets that the Japanese wanted. So having Tufts to do their dirty work was how the Japanese did it sometimes. And in the next episode, we'll pick up with the decline of the Jewish presence in Harbin and what happened after that. We'll also look at Tianjin and, of course, everything that transpired down in Shanghai. We leave the Harbin Jews in these oppressive days following Zhou one of the Dates in Chinese history that lives in infamy, the Mukden Incident. Wasn't good for China and the Chinese, nor for the Jews of Harbin. Please think about coming back next time for more. November 2nd and 3rd at Harvard. You could come see me live at the Sound Education Conference. Dan Carlin will be the keynote speaker. Hey, baby, I'm bringing my autograph book for sure. If you're in the Boston area come see me. I'm speaking Saturday the 3rd at Rockefeller Hall. If you can't make it, I'll have the talk available on 8-track and cassette for purchase later on. Until the next time, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles. I beseech you once again, please consider coming back next time, and it won't be very long, I assure you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.